Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Traders, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me on episode 220. And I have a very, very special guest for you, Eric Swanson, CEO of Simplex Trading in Chicago. Well, unknown to many, Simplex is one of the top market-making firms in US equity options providing liquidity in almost every listed options contract, and in recent times, trading upwards of 2 million contracts daily. So as you could imagine, all of my questions for Eric were intended for you and I to get a better understanding of how market makers operate, from quoting to hedging and the complexities that take place in between. Eric also speaks on the GameStop saga, but importantly, from his position as a market maker. Then following on from this, the often sensitive topic of payment for order flow, a practice that Simplex is becoming increasingly involved in. Personally, I found this chat with Eric to be hugely interesting, and I hope you will also. You know, unless you work within one of these firms, I feel as though it's actually quite difficult to get this level of insight anywhere else to how market makers do what they do. So let's get to it. My friends, I'm pleased to present Eric Swanson. From what I've read, you came through the door of Simplex uh, in about 2008. Six years later, you're the CEO. How did that happen? Simplex changed a lot during that period. When I originally started in 2008, um, it was my first job coming out of college and just kind of a weird accident of fate led me to Chicago and to start at Simplex. Trading hadn't really been on my radar, but uh, once I started, we were trading options at the time in a somewhat less automated way than we trade them now. And we were, Simplex really needed just people to help support the technology that we were running at the time. Yeah, there was just a lot of opportunity in 2008. It was a crazy time to start. But over the next couple of years, trends in trading as well as some market structure changes affected the way that we were operating. 
So we had to make some changes in 2011, kind of recalibrate the way the firm approached opportunity. And at that point, there was a little bit of a restructuring that uh, empowered me and um, our CTO to kind of run the business in a more day-to-day way with the partners taking a little bit more of a step back. And then in 2014, uh, after we had really committed to trading in a more automated fashion, we moved our trading into a broker dealer, which we previously had not been doing, at which point we needed a new CEO. And so as I had been taking on more responsibility over time, at that point, I I took on the, the CEO role. Okay. So what was your role when you did first start? Were you a trader? I was a trader, yeah. One of, at the time, something like 80, I think. So we were trading in a fairly manual fashion options as well, but identifying mispricings in the market and executing them with a mixture of hand orders and some light automation that was supporting the trading at the time. Now, this was presumably still very systematic. You were still market making or were you taking more maybe directional bets and using a bit more discretion? It was always a market-making oriented strategy. So the idea of Simplex from the beginning has been that the market's prevailing prices are generally correct. And as much as possible, we want to buy on the bid and sell on the ask. And when we remove liquidity, it's typically in the service of still buying below what we consider to be fair value and selling above what we consider to be fair value. So that that model was in place from the very beginning when I started at Simplex. So I would call it, while we were not technically market making at the time, what we were doing was in the spirit of market making. Gotcha. Okay. So before we go too much further, you know, although Simplex is a major player in the US market, I presume most of my audience probably uh, aren't familiar with who you are. So just to preface our chat, what is Simplex or who is Simplex? So Simplex is an automated options-focused market-making company here in the United States. Um, We've been around since 2004 in various permutations. As I just mentioned, it's been a period, there's been a lot of evolution over the history of the firm. But since 2015, we have been a registered market maker in U.S. listed equity options. We currently make markets on 14 of the 16 listed U.S. options exchanges, and we trade the entire universe of listed symbols. So everything that you can trade options on in the U.S., we are willing to make a market in. And we have positions in in nearly all of those names. We're quite active trading a high single digit market share on a daily basis, you know, more than 2 million contracts a day so far in you know recently recent months what does it mean to be a registered market maker like do you have an obligation to provide a set amount of liquidity or sure it comes with uh, it comes with responsibilities to be present in the market a certain amount of time at certain market widths Often the markets widths that are prevailing are are considerably tighter than the obligations. I think there's a a very robust level of competition between market makers to provide competitive liquidity. But it does come with those obligations to be there and also comes with some privileges in terms of margin relief and some other 
ancillary bonuses. Okay. Now, as an options market maker, just from a very high level, before I ask some more specific questions here, can you just explain, like, what is your objective? Like, where do you seek to gain an edge? I mean, I don't know if you, you've already kind of answered this by saying, you know, we essentially want to buy on the bid and sell on the offer. I mean, is it as simple as that? Or, I mean, what's, what's the objective? What's the, what's the premise of your trades? For us, it pretty much is as simple as that. So there's a ton of trading going on in the market every day. And we've built an electronic system that can look across all of that different activity and find places where we feel like we're likely to be able to either add or remove liquidity at prices that are competitive or better than the prevailing fair value. So we want to just make as many trades like that as possible, hedge them as effectively as we can, uh, and then just manage the risk of the resulting book. So really for us, we're not, we don't have an opinion on what the stocks that we're trading are likely to do other than maybe some very short term signals. And we don't have any opinions really even on volatility other than that we want to minimize our exposure to it. We're pretty much just trying to make sure that we are buying below fair value and selling above fair value as many times as we possibly can to you know, maximize the likelihood that that works out on average. Okay. So I'm going to make a note here to ask you about how you determine what's fair value. But let's say... It's first thing in the morning, you walk into the office, come in, fire up your systems. Are you starting each day flat? Because I think that's quite uh, common amongst you know, like low latency market making firms is that they do start uh, each day flat and they go home each day flat. Um, is that the case for you or are you constantly uh, running a book overnight? That is definitely not the case for us. And while I agree with you that it is very common in market makers who focus on what I would call Delta One products, so you know, cash equities, futures, FX, et cetera, options traders, it's really impossible to go home flat because the activity is dispersed so widely into different strikes. Even as a market maker, like if I'm a market maker in Apple, my goal is to say buy Apple and then sell that same share right back out to another participant. But as an options market maker, if I buy uh, the Apple 250 call, say, in a particular expiration, I'm very unlikely to be able to sell that exact strike back to another participant. So I'm always going to be looking to either hedge that trade with deltas, sell a similar call, either in a, the same expiry in a closer strike or a nearby expiry, say. So our hedging results in this constant accumulation of positions. And as a result, we have a, a very large amount of open interest all the time. That, that's a big part of, of being a successful options market maker. And I think is true for us and basically all our competitors as well. So when at the beginning of the day, I know this might be a bit of a difficult question to answer, but I mean, how do you determine what stocks or what options contracts you're going to post quotes in? There's no choice. Every day, it's every option. <laughs> so every every day, we're willing to trade every single option that is listed on U.S. exchanges. Okay, and so as soon as the market opens, you fire in your orders. You've you're posting liquidity and pretty much every 
option contract out there. Right. So there's over a million listed strikes. Not every single one of them will have a, uh, an actual resting quote from us every moment. But pursuant to our obligations as a market maker, we have to cover a large percentage of those strikes all of the time. And then whether or not we have an instantaneous quote at any moment, we do have a price at which we are willing to buy and sell that option. And if an order appears that would trade at a price that we think is favorable, we are always willing to trade it. So every every single strike, we have a buy and a sell price with maybe, maybe some minor exceptions where we violated a risk limit and we're no longer willing to take more. But call it you know 99.5% of strikes that aren't in that case, we have a buy and a sell price every moment that the market is open. Okay. And so are you submitting quotes only into uh, the options contracts like you're not trying to make a market in the underlying stock? That's broadly true, yes. So we do trade a lot of cash equities or you know, stock, underlying stock, but really just in service of our hedging right now. So because we have such a large book of options positions, we're always exposed to the underlying stock movement through our options deltas. And we're always trying to minimize those positions. So at any given moment, say I'm long deltas in Apple, there's a good chance I will be doing making some effort to be selling Apple stock either by doing something that looks like market making or crossing the spread, whatever I think is the most advantageous. But we really focus on options as our source of edge in the market. You know, sticking with this example of when you walk through the door, you come in in the morning do you give any consideration to what's happened overnight in markets abroad? I mean, I know you keep emphasizing that you uh, are not trying to have an opinion on direction and volatility, et cetera, but is that something that you need to give any consideration to, or you know, does that change how you're going to operate or how you're going to um, you know, submit quotes for the start of the session? Or To reiterate a little bit what I said before, we basically are of the opinion that the prevailing prices in the market are correct. Uh, and if they're not correct, we typically don't have an opinion about which way they're not correct. So when you talk about markets abroad, our general opinion is that those are already properly priced into local markets um, and the underlying equities that we're trading. So we're not particularly considering those changes or the market moves of of other markets or even really of the stocks that we are actually trading. So as much as possible, we've tried to design a system that is self-calibrating. So when you look at what our trading staff actually does on a day-to-day basis, when they come in in the morning, they're not typically reacting to specific events of that morning. So the way our system is designed, if the market opens and spreads are wider than usual, say, because there's been a high amount of volatility, all of our systems will automatically calibrate our buy and sell prices and our risk management strategy to respond to that market condition. So because of that self-calibrating nature, the traders that we have are not interacting with our trading models really even on a daily basis. So I would say it's more common for us to make parameter changes, say, 
every, you know, on a given strategy, maybe we'll tweak things on a weekly basis, on a broad strategy basis, and maybe several weeks or even months before between making actual parameter changes. We're much more focused on trying to design the self-calibrating nature into the system and then kind of let it run with as much thorough oversight as it needs, but not with constant tweaking from our actual humans. Are you able to give an example of a parameter change? Say we have a, a pricing, say we have a strategy that is looking at every option in the market and waiting for uh, an order that we think is at, posted at an attractive price to show up. So you might have heard this described as like an electronic eye, say, is a commonly used phrase for it. So wherever there's a order that crosses your fair value, you're going to evaluate whether or not that's a good opportunity to trade. So we have a set of parameters that describe how aggressive we are willing to be with regard to our pricing in our electronic eye. So if I say normally in a particular situation, I want to require a certain amount of edge, like these parameters are slightly more cal uh, self-calibrating than I'm describing right now, but say our typical amount of required edge says, if I'm going to buy an option in Apple, I want to get $1 per contract in edge. We might be seeing in our data over time that requiring $1 contract is not enough to compensate us for the long-term slippage of the trades that we're making. And so our traders would make a database, a data-based case for why $1 of edge is not sufficient in Apple. And as a group, we would make a decision about whether or not they're correct. And if we agree, then we might change that parameter to say, okay, going forward, I'm going to require $1.25 per contract of edge in Apple to be willing to make a trade. So how do you, I mean, I'm, I've got to try and walk the line of not prying too much here, but um, I'm very curious as to how you do this. But how do you determine, how do you put a dollar value on how much edge there is in a particular trade? Because we're largely relying on the market for information about what fair pricing is, we build a model for every option that takes a series of market inputs, you know, mostly around the market data that we're observing in those markets, and distill them down to a single fair value for that strike that we're, you know, constantly grinding on the whole universe of options to come up with what our fair value is, uh, based on a combination of, of that market data and say, you know, a, vol a proprietary volatility model that kind of discounts changes over time, et cetera. And edge is really just the deviation from that fair value model adjusted by the fees that we have to pay to make trades. So if I think an option's worth a dollar and I see an offer to sell at 98 cents posted on an exchange that has a half a penny remove fee, then I would say, okay, well, there's 1.5 cents of edge in that opportunity. And that may be good enough or it may not be good enough depending on my parameterizations. Okay, I'm with you. So I guess the next obvious question is, how do you deem what is fair value? 
so I tried to get into that a little bit on the previous answer, but yeah, fair value, we, we basically have an internal model that combines the observed market data that we have with our internal vol volatility modeling to spit out uh, a fair value for every option, basically. I mean, generally, I just as a general rule, if you look at an options market, depending on how much visibility into market data that you have, if you can see the bid and ask, typically our fair value will be something like the midpoint of the bid and ask. It, it, there's lots of situations where it might deviate, but if the best bid in an option is a dollar and the best ask is $1.10, most of the time we think the fair value is $1.05. So here I guess we've spoken quite a bit about how you're quoting uh, and putting orders out there into the market. Let's say you are lifted, uh, you're filled on one of those orders. So let's say I come along um, and I buy 10 call options in Apple. Um, and what happens next what, for, from your point of view? Sure. So, you, so Aaron comes into the market and buys 10 calls in Apple, say they're 50 Delta calls, and Simplex is the seller. Correct. Yeah. So a few things happen. So first of all, the, the easiest risk for an options market maker to address is Delta because there's relatively less friction in trading stock than there is in trading options. So I'm going to make a consideration, okay, what is the aggregate Delta position that I have in Apple? And is it at a level that I feel like I need to hedge? So in this case, since you just bought 10 calls, that's not really a lot of risk for me. So there's a good chance I might do nothing. If you bought 1,000 calls, then there's a much higher likelihood that I'm going to go in immediately and start trying to buy stock. because So you're the call buyer. I'm the call seller, which means I have a, I'm functionally short exposure to the stock through my short calls. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to want to be a buyer of equities to hedge that position. So that would be a typical response. Also, because we have this large self-calibrating risk management system, every option basically has a bias based on our existing book, whether or not we have a position in it. So you, say you bought the Apple 250 call, every single other call input in that expiration and other expirations is going to have a slightly tweaked bias within Simplex's system about how we want to trade. So every call bid, or basically every option bid everywhere will be very slightly increased and every option ask will be slightly brought higher to account for the fact that we now have a, a short risk in Apple that we want to be reducing. So we're always trying to be reducing. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. 
not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, I probably should have asked you this a little bit sooner, but just for anyone who's unfamiliar with the terminology here, can you just explain Delta, please? Sure. So, uh, you know, I guess to get a little bit more elementary, even a, a call option is a contract that gives you the right to buy stock, that gives the holder of the call option option, the long side, the right to buy stock at some specified price at some specified future date. Mm-hmm. So if you own a call option, you and the stock is going up, typically the value of your call option is going up. The ratio in which your option moves relative to the price of the underlying is called delta. So if you own a call and the stock goes up a dollar and your call goes up 10 cents, that has moved on a 10 delta because you got 10 cents of exposure for a $1 move. So when we talk about being short and long delta, if you own a call, you have a economic exposure to the stock going up being is good for you. Then you're long delta, just as if you were long stock, you are also long delta. And then short calls would be the opposite. Short calls are short delta. And then if you have put options, which give you the right to sell a stock, it's the opposite. So long puts give you short delta and short puts give you long delta. Is that sufficient or still too technical? No, I think that's, that's a good explanation. Okay. Yeah, so Delta is one of the the options Greeks, which are an important part of our risk management regime. We care a lot about our exposure to um, to you know all the major option Greeks and some of the more minor ones. So basically, because options have a, a dimensionality of risk, they move with movements in the underlying, but they also move with movements in their implied volatility which is a market measure of how likely the stock is to move over a given time period and how much. And then they're also sensitive to interest rates and dividend expectations. So there's a lot of dimensionality in managing options risk. And so as an options market maker, you have to kind of weigh all those risks together and figure out the best way to minimize them across your portfolio. Now, in this example where I come along and I buy, well, let's just ramp it up, let's say it's a thousand call options because you said that would, um, you know, cause you to adjust your quotes everywhere. That would everywhere. make a bigger difference. Yeah. <laughs> so 
right at the beginning, you, you pretty much said we're just trying to buy on the bid and sell on the offer. But it's it's kind of in this example, it's it's certainly not as simple as that because I'm buying these call options from you. Uh, and then you're going into the stock and, um, you know, hedging in the stock. So I guess where do you, at what point is the trade kind of flattened? Like where is the money, where is your PL realized on that trade? At what point? Or is it just a constantly evolving thing? It's really a constantly evolving thing. So that's one of the big differences between options market making and equity or futures market making, because I can never really be flat. So ultimately, say your call that you bought expires um, in our next serial expiration, which is a week from Friday, August 20th, uh, my PL isn't really realized until the option rolls off or I happen to incidentally close it, but that rarely is the case. So usually if I sell you a thousand call options, I am going to hold your specific call option trade until it expires. Or, you know, maybe you come back and try to take off your own position and I reduce against you. There's lots of ways that you would minimize, but as a theoretical matter, we basically treat it like I don't, the way I evaluate my PL is imagining if we held it until it expires. So your thousand lot call trade, that's, that's like the, the, the huge difference of market making too, versus like, uh, a trader who's trading a smaller number of instruments or making a smaller number of trades per day. Even your thousand lot call trade is small in the scheme of all of the trades that I'm making in a given day. And so I'm basically just hoping to balance my risk as best I can and have those edges that I'm building up through the day, have most of that still be there at the end of the day, but I'm still exposed to all those trades. So it never really closes until you have expirations. So how do you defend a position when it's moving against you? Um, And I guess maybe using this word position isn't um, the best term, but uh, let's say your your holdings in Apple, you know, your whole book, of, you've got your long like and short. The portfolio. Of these, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, normally when we think of a portfolio, it's like a portfolio of, a, you know, a hundred different stocks or something. But I mean, you've really got a portfolio just of all the instruments in one stock, right? So, you know. Right. So in Apple, I might have, I don't know off the top of my head, 500 or a thousand different individual strike positions in Apple at any given moment, plus a position in the underlying stock. Yeah. So how do you defend um, a portfolio of Apple contracts when it's moving against you? So we constantly bias ourselves to be reducing our risk to reduce the likelihood that it will move against us. But unless something very extreme is happening, the real answer is pretty much nothing. So the idea is that I have been paid enough by the trades when I originally made them to compensate me for the risk of it moving against me. And if it does move against me, which 
certainly it does sometimes, and I, I'll lose money on a given position. I'm hoping that I have other positions that are moving in my favor that balance it out. So in terms of proactive risk management, we really only would go down that road if we felt like we were exposed at a level that created a lot of discomfort within the firm to say, okay, this is the kind of loss that would be irresponsible to take. But if, say, Apple's moving against me and I'm losing money, in terms of active management of that position, we really don't do anything. <laughs> I know that might be shocking, but it's really, so market making is just so much a game of large numbers, right? So how do I put myself in a position to collect as much edge on the way in and have as little risk on the way out that over time, I'm always coming out ahead? You know, when you're placing the casino side of a of a gambling game, they know they're getting edge. Like, yeah, sometimes the players are winning. Somebody hits a hot streak in blackjack or whatever, but the the casino doesn't care. It's going to balance out at the end. Yeah. So, what would what are kind of the key factors that contribute to your profitability? I was going to say on any given day, but. I don't know if that's that's the right question to ask, but I mean, what's like, are there certain conditions like market conditions where you're going to do uh, a lot better in, um, you know, is that a, a market where volatility is dried up? Is it a, a market where volatility is expanding? So as a general rule for market makers, including us, we tend to do better when volatility is higher. So the more volatility, well, at least historically, this is things that have been a little bit on their head in 2021, but historically volatility has had a high correlation with volume. So when volatility is high, you typically get more trading. And since trades as a market maker, trades come to us, we don't proactively enter trades generally. So the more trading that's happening in the market, the more opportunity we have. So high volume is good. And then volatility also causes spreads to get wider. So the difference between the bid and the ask tends to increase in periods of high volatility, which is also good for market maker profitability. So we definitely want, I mean, it's beneficial uh, for us to have periods of high volatility although transitions can be difficult, say. So sometimes if you go from a, the adjustment from a period of low volatility to high volatility can be bad depending on how you're positioned. But once you get to a period of high volatility, typically things are better. You said right at the beginning there, things have been on their head a little bit in 2021. How come? So if you look at volumes in the options market, the level of volume that has been trading in 2021 in a period with relatively low realized volatility is would have been unimaginable only a few years ago so you know average i i could be getting my numbers slightly wrong here but i think that uh average volume in the second quarter of 2021 for listed equity options was over 30 million contracts a day in a period that had actually quite low realized volatility in aggregate. Whereas 30 million options before 2019, say, would have been one of the busiest days of all time. And so here we are sitting in this 
period of relatively low volatility and, and trading these extremely elevated levels of options, which I think is you know, an outgrowth of the, the huge surge in interest in, in retail trading, which has proved to be much more durable this year than I think a lot of people would have expected, myself included. I, at the beginning of the year, I did not imagine that we would be at such a consistently high level of volume this far through 2021. Okay, so the spike in retail participation, well, it's not so much a spike if it's maintained, is it? But Yeah, it was a spike into a plateau. <laughs> a, quick run, a quick run up and then we just stay high. Yeah, so I obviously have to ask you about the GameStop saga. And I know it's sort of been uh, a bit overdone, but uh, given the position that you're in, I think it's it's worth bringing up. What impact did this have on you guys, obviously, you were uh, an active market maker in that stock or in the end in, in those options. Um, I mean, what what did that mean for your business or your operation? It was really just an, a shocking thing as it was happening. There have been large moves sustained like this before, and and certainly there. You know, I don't want to make a conclusion about exactly what drove the dynamics in in GME and some of these other stocks. But I mean, I assume that some part of it probably was a short squeeze and we have seen short squeezes before. Um, But the the strength and um, lasting nature of this one has has really been a surprise. But to go back to that question you asked me a minute ago about what sort of market conditions make for good environments for market makers, volatility and market spreads being higher are the elements that maximize opportunity for us. So volume and spreads rather. And we have never seen volume in individual names like this before. And the spreads were quite wide through the moves. So I mean, I think broadly the market making community did quite well on trading in GameStop and, and other similar stocks. I think that this uh, narrative that the traders think that they're getting over on the market making community or, or particular firms is kind of hilarious. Like the things that they're doing are in many ways calibrated to maximize the profits of market makers. But yeah, I mean, it, it has created some real interesting situations in risk management um, because historically you just don't have to plan for 150%, 250%, even more potentially overnight moves in most single name equities. And it's created a ripple through the the clearing firms or sort of prime brokers that market makers deal with who now have significantly higher risk margins for us. So it's been an interesting challenge to figure out how you can calibrate your risk management model to deal with such an extreme situation. But on the whole, this frenzy of trading has created, I think, a a lot of opportunity on the market making side. When those types of events come around and the market moves uh, in one direction so quickly, as much as you try to avoid having any direction of all uh, risk, does that ev- inev- inevitably end up happening that you do have some directional risk or is it always perfectly hedged? 
Oh, absolutely. It does. It, it always, it happens quite frequently, especially in a case like GameStop where so much of the move was being dictated by options activity as a market maker. If, uh, the customers that you're facing off against are very one-sided, say they're furiously buying calls while, while the stock rallies hard, we are going to be selling those calls to facilitate their buys. And so that's going to give us short exposure to GameStop, which ordinarily we would like to hedge by buying shares. But two things are going on. One, the stock's rallying very, very hard in these scenarios, and it makes it difficult to buy stock. You have to be extremely aggressive to come in and cross the spread if you want to buy long delta exposure. Second, part of options risk management is there's a, a second order Greek risk uh, called gamma which means if you are short a call and the stock rallies, you actually get increasingly short exposure in the underlying. So now as the stock rallies, it's hard for me to buy. And as the stock is rallying, I am getting progressively more short exposure. So that can be a very challenging situation as a market maker. And I think on some of those very brisk, uh, you know, really rapid moves, it can be hard to keep up with that exposure and, and you end up overexposed and that can cause economic losses, but not every minute of every day looks like that. So, you know, you do poorly on a particular period of, of time and then if activity remains robust, you have an opportunity to kind of get back ahead. But that kind of delta risk is certainly for us a huge part of, of our business and managing it to be as small as possible is a, is a constant focus that we put a lot of resources into. You may have explained it in your answer there, but I just thought that was an interesting comment where you said that a lot of the move was dictated by options activity. Um, can you just explain that dynamic a little more? So I'll admit that I am editorializing a bit here. I mean, I cannot, I, I do not have uh, data handy to really establish this. And on some level, it would be hard to do so. But certainly in the most frenzied days of meme stock movement, GME especially, we were seeing tremendous surges of, of options activity, including a lot of call buying. So I think that there is a sort of, you know, narrative out there in the world that that call buying was a large factor in causing the rally in the stock price. And part of it is through the mechanism that I just described, right? So as market makers sell options, uh, sell calls rather specifically, as you sell calls, you get short exposure. And the way market makers react to that short exposure is typically by trying to buy stock. And if we're all trying to buy stock at once, it might create a bit of a demand uh, excess that causes the price to go up. And there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy there because as the stock goes up, we get more short exposure. We need to buy even more. And there can be a bit of a, a snowball effect that causes the stock to move quite a bit. I think, th th like I said, there's a, a bit of a narrative around that being one of the things that drove large moves in GameStop before. I can't, I certainly can't say with any concrete certainty that that's really what was happening. I mean, it's very hard to suss these things out, 
but it seems plausible to me that it may have been a factor. Yeah, it's really interesting to get your take on the whole the whole saga, given the position you're in. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about payment for order flow. Now, payment for order flow, it's not a new uh, thing. <laughs> it's been around for a while, but from the sounds of it, it's something new to Simplex or it's something you're just starting to get involved with. Um, how come you're moving into this now? So Simplex... Uh, historically has not been a player in the payment for order flow space, but it's something that we decided to get into a few years ago and that right now we're really starting to ramp up our participation in. And basically, you know, we think that there's an opportunity for additional competition in the space because it's a relatively small number of players who've dominated it for a long time. And, you know, our experience in talking to retail firms has been that they are hungry for more competition. They don't want to have this extremely high level of allocation to a very small number of firms. So a few years ago, Simplex entered into a partnership with a, another broker dealer called Matrix Executions, which is run by a, a former guest of yours, uh, Tony Saliba. And through that partnership, uh, Matrixes is going out and dealing with retail firms directly, and Simplex is uh, helping to provide liquidity um, behind those orders and providing payment for order flow through Matrix. So, you know, we think it's an opportunity for us to build our market share and, um, you know, find opportunity in the market, but also to provide value to retail firms who are routing orders to the market and who need more options uh, in terms of firms to do that with. I, I saw a, a press release from a competitor of mine this morning citing that, you know, in recent 606 data, over 80% of PFOF eligible orders have been routed to just four firms in options. So it's, it's a pretty narrow group and one that we think will benefit from, from growing. Now, payment for order flow can be a little bit of a sensitive topic. What are the common criticisms that you hear about payment for order flow and how would you address those criticisms? So there's definitely criticism around the fact that it creates conflicts of interest at broker dealers um, and the fact that it doesn't necessarily provide the most effective price improvement scheme for, or price improvement opportunity for the retail customers that are experiencing the PFOF or that are trading through PFOF accepting brokers. I think that there's kind of two separate questions, one around the idea of wholesaling and one around the idea of payment for order flow. So wholesaling is the idea that a retail brokerage would partner with a market maker to provide liquidity to their orders, where that market maker basically guarantees to provide a certain amount of price improvement in exchange for the ability to route those orders and to have a higher level of interaction with them. I think that it's basically uh, indisputable that the retail orders that are routed that way get a better experience than if they were routed to the market. There just isn't really an opportunity in the U.S. options market structure 
for retail orders to experience price improvement other than through being exposed to a wholesaler. So the way our market structure works, orders that are paired and go down to an exchange have the opportunity to experience price, competitive price improvement through auction processes where even the wholesaler who creates an auction may not ultimately be the one who provides the most price improvement and other market makers have the opportunity to, to compete as opposed to equities where that's not the case. In options, every trade has to go through an exchange. And I think that provides a real value to those retail customers. The payment for order flow question is more about how you divvy up the pie between the customer receiving improvement and the firm that is uh, routing their order for them, their, their broker. And I think that you know that's a, a question that customers can think about in terms of where they think their interests are best served. I, I'm not going to, you know, come out hard in response to, or in support of the idea of larger payment for order flow numbers or anything, but I think it's a blend between price improvement and payment for order flow that gets them superior service or lower commissions or whatever they're getting from their broker that they choose. I may have may just need some clarification here. The way I understood it um, as payment for order flow works, it's like if I'm a retail trader. Um, and I have an account with a broker who you have an arrangement with and I try to buy an option, that order is actually routed to you in which you can then decide if you want to take the other side of that trade. Otherwise, you route that order to the exchange. Is that, to what extent is that statement true? So in equities, I think that that is a fairly accurate description. There's a little bit, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay. <laughs> but in options, there's a big extra step, which is all orders that are traded in options must be routed to an exchange to be crossed. So if you buy Apple stock, say, and it goes to a, uh, wholesale firm, they have an ability to do a, a cross in what's called the TRF, uh, which would allow them to basically provide liquidity to your order without exposing it to the market until after the fact. In the options market, in order to do a cross, you either have to just route it to the screens where maybe you are waiting to provide liquidity, you had an order resting at a given price that may interact with it on the open market, or you have to internalize it in a price improvement auction, which allows an opportunity for other market makers to compete to provide additional price improvement to those customer orders. So for example, it, say you have a, an order in options where you wanna buy a particular call for a dollar, and Simplex is willing to sell it to you at that price. So we start, the, a common way for us to internalize that order would be to start a price improvement auction that says, okay, here's a buyer at a dollar and Simplex is willing to sell that dollar. But that's broadcast out to all the participants in the market. Actually, even non-market maker participants can listen if they'd like and respond um, at more aggressive prices. So say another one of my competitors is willing to sell 98 cents 
they can respond to that auction, provide additional price improvement, and then that would flow back to you. I wasn't aware of that. So I'm just trying to get my head around how that actually works. So if you are paying for this flow, but then other your other competitors also have the option to um, participate in that flow, what's the benefit to you? Well, it's not a totally frictionless process. There, there's some benefits. There's some allocation benefits to the initiator. I might have the right in that auction to, if I was willing to sell 98 cents as well, I might still get an allocation on that sale, for example. So multiple people can participate at a single price, but it creates the opportunity for additional price improvement in a way that is not currently existing in the equities market. And how long does this whole process take? Like it's fairly, it's fairly instant. It's right? quite quick. The the historically the auction timers were about one second, but they've broadly been compressed down to a hundred milliseconds or even less. <laughs> okay, so let's just. So it it's definitely instant. happening in computer time. <laughs> yeah. But for market makers, a hundred milliseconds is still a very very long, large amount of time. <laughs> All right, yeah. Eric. Let's do one last question to take us out here. Now you compete in a very highly competitive area of the market. How does Simplex continue to maintain an edge over its peers? You know, you've got Virtue, you've got Citadel, Susquehanna, Jane Street, you know, all these other firms. And I imagine to a certain extent, you know, they're doing fairly similar kind of things. How do you maintain a competitive edge in the market? So I think that historically Simplex has done a, a really good job of doing, achieving a very high level of scale at a, in a very efficient way. So the way that we've architected our teams and our electronic systems has been to be able to trade the most securities with the least amount of hardware and humans. And so I think that that has given us a pretty durable advantage over time, the way we architected our systems originally. And then, you know, honestly, I think that we just have a team that's very good at, at digging into the data, deeply understanding market structure, figuring out where there are opportunities and the best way to go after those opportunities. I agree with you that these other firms are doing in a, in a lot of ways similar things to what we're doing. But yeah, I mean, I think that over time, we've just been able to keep adapting with, with changing market structure and scaling up our footprint as, as we need to remain competitive. Eric, I lied. There was one more thing I made a note to ask you about. Okay. <laughs> Getting hired. Okay. So let's say someone's interested in uh, joining uh, Simplex or getting into maybe another firm or getting into this kind of trading. So uh, you're, Simplex is one of these firms where you, it's very obviously – technology driven, no one's there just trading an individual book. You know, it's a very much a collaborative type of um, firm. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a little bit different from, you know, some of these other uh, firms where everyone has an individual book uh, placing much more directional based trades. What, I guess two questions here, like what are the most common positions which you hire for and what are some tips for how to get hired? Like, what are the skill sets you're most looking for? As a general rule, we tend to hire more developers than traders. 
Uh, and the developers that we hire, you know, have facility with low level programming and, you know, large data set management stuff. Uh, very, a lot of um, speed optimization as well. But in terms of hiring traders, we're really looking for people who have strong quantitative and data backgrounds. I think I mentioned a couple of times in our discussion about how when we want to change parameters or change strategies or whatever, the burden is on the trader to make a data-driven case for why that's a good idea. And so we need to have traders who have the facility with managing data and extracting information from it to be able to do that. So we tend to look for people with very quantitative backgrounds. Um, we're very open to hiring people who have little or no financial experience. Like we're much more concerned with the ability to work with and manipulate large data sets than we are with knowing about finance. I feel like we can teach people about finance, but not the other side of it. So, you know, recently we've been hiring people who have worked at defense contractors or in uh, biomedicine or fields like that who have good data skills and then training them to be traders as opposed to hiring people who are more focused on finance. So I would say if you want to work in the kind of quantitative finance that we do, you've got to focus on math and data analysis. So on paper, are there any set qualifications that you are looking for? You mean like minimum requirements? Yeah, I guess so. Like a, a degree in X or? Not particularly. I would say we're not super picky about degrees. We're not the, um, you know, we're not hyper-focused on hiring from only the best schools. Really just being able to, to show that you've developed those skills either in school or at another job, you know, demonstrate that in, in the uh, interview process. And I think that's the biggest key. I, I think that we're, we don't think that the, the raw credentials are the most important thing. It's more about what we think you're capable of doing. Right. Gotcha. Cool. Bachelor's degrees are nice though. <laughs> most people expect that. All right, Eric, let's leave it there for now. Uh, if someone wants to find out more about you or more about Simplex, where should they go? So we have a website at simplextrading.com. I would recommend them to go there and they can learn a little bit more about our team and our firm and, and what we do. Yeah. And then as far as me personally, I, uh, I'm not very vocal in any public forums other than making occasional appearances like this. So I, I would just direct people to the website. All right, Eric. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity. So uh, thank you for doing an interview and I'd love to chat again sometime. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for talking to me today. I, I hope that your listeners found it interesting. I'm sure they did. Thank you. Thanks. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.